Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Real Estate Strategies Podcast, where we host in-depth conversations on everything real estate with the industry's biggest movers and shakers. I'm your host, Ken McElroy, joined by my co-host, Daniil. Let's get right into this episode. Hey, everybody, it's Ken and Daniil. Hello. And I'm excited to have Chad Griffiths here. Chad is an expert in industrial, and as you guys know, we try to cover all aspects on this real estate channel. So, Chad, welcome to the channel. Yeah, hi, Ken and Daniil. Very excited to be here and happy to chat about anything to do with industrial real estate. I know. I, listen, we, we, we went and checked out your channel. You've obviously got a ton of videos. You've brokered over 1,000 deals. Uh, what I really like is you've been an active investor since 2014. So, you know, not like a lot of the folks that, you know, just got in the last few years and they've, you know, they've had nothing but success. But um, let's talk about when you first came in the industry, because at that time, uh, real estate was a bit in flux, right? Yeah. So I started in 2005. That's when I first became a broker. And that there, that was a pretty good time, but it was right before the Great Recession in 2007. So I had a little bit of time to get my feet wet. And then all of a sudden we're into the worst recession that people had seen in decades. Right. Uh, so it was really that feet to the fire kind of moment. And I'd wanted to invest all along. I've owned some residential properties. I had a, had a small fourplex at one point. So I wanted to invest in commercial real estate, but it took that long of going through a recession, trying to get my feet under me and, and then saving up money and investing and get, having enough of a, of a pile of money that I could actually start deploying that it really took. So 2005, I got started in the industry, bought the first industrial property nine years later in 2014. Yeah. Well, I think the reason why I wanted to start there is because I, I think that, um, you know, I knew you had gotten into the business in 2005. And, and so anybody who's kind of been through that understands that. And I think in the last 10 years, nobody really gets it. You know, nobody really understands, you know, what, what can really happen. Uh, what you went through at the very beginning was probably a blessing uh, because, you know, you were able to see the other side of it. I, I think what right now, everybody's got this irrational exuberance, right? They all are, you know, they all are like, ah, real estate continually goes up. So before we jump into, you know, industrial and all that, let's talk about, you know, what, what's your experience been from, from that period of time when the wheels came off and the banks owned a bunch of real estate and um, you, you were right in the middle of that at that time. Yeah. I, I think saying the wheels fell off was a great analogy for it because it, 
capital dried up very quickly. It was very hard to finance any property because banks were underwater with all the properties that they had to take back. Their own balance sheets looked really poor. So there just was very difficult getting any type of financing. So that 2008, 2009, there was very little deal volume at all. So it was really only this extremely well-capitalized investors that were ultra-strong borrowers. Anybody on the fringe or perhaps on the cusp, maybe if you remember back to 2006, 2007, they were giving anybody who wanted money, they were just giving loans away. On the residential side, you get 105% loan-to-value uh, mortgages so that you had money to do renovations. That flipped uh, very quickly within a year or two. And and you're right, I, I think that there's such a difference now where this generation of new investors hasn't seen a recession. And I'm reminded of Dave Portnoy, the famous guy on Twitter from Barstool Sports who had a sign behind his wall that said, stocks only go up. And it was probably somewhat facetious, like he was just probably somewhat joking. But I think a lot of people actually believe that. They believe that stocks would only go up or real estate would only go up or crypto would only go up. There was this fallacy that anything that someone bought, it would just go up. And now we're seeing conditions that are somewhat similar to that 2008, 2009 capital crunch, where it is just getting difficult financing properties right now. So it, it will be very interesting to see how this new generation of investors who's never experienced anything like it, how do they, how do they actually navigate through something they're completely unfamiliar with? Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is what's really cool is your industry, the industrial industry, has completely changed from, you know, even 15 years ago, you know, or 10 years ago. Um, and, and so for most people, it's going to be obvious after we say it, but you think about industrial typically was, you know, kind of the, the blue collar worker back yeah. in the day. Now you're talking about last mile distribution. You're talking about everybody wants something they want it now. Uh, so, you know, every package, every, everything that you order, you know, you want immediately. And so therefore industrial has just been on fire. So it's cool that you came in in 14 because now you're kind of the cool kid of the real estate, you, you know, uh, uh, you know, of, of all these different asset classes, industrial has really outperformed multifamily office, retail and single family. Uh, what, isn't that right? Yeah. They, I think multifamily is still a very great investment choice as well. And I think there's that has performed very well. I'd love to get your opinion on what that looks like over the next year or two. Uh, but multifamily's done well. Office is, is looks very bleak right now. That's an asset class I certainly wouldn't be interested in. Retail's plugged along. Industrial's just been the darling of the of the whole commercial real estate industry for those reasons that you mentioned. Everybody wants distribution space. Fifteen years ago, we didn't see a whole lot of industrial. It was always tended to be tucked away in, in industrial parks out of the public purview. They didn't really see it a whole lot. It wasn't talked about in the news. Well, fast forward to today and where you were in Phoenix, I was just in Phoenix a couple months ago. There's industrial going up absolutely everywhere. Main roads, near the airport, on highways. You're seeing these massive distribution centers for all for the reason that you mentioned, that last mile delivery. Everybody needs warehouse space to fulfill these orders, to have it ready to go when customers order it. And then you add on even the onshoring or reshoring effect right now where there's a lot of interest and appetite to bring manufacturing back stateside uh, away from some of the Asian countries that had historically dominated that manufacturing side. 
So you add in this huge race to build as much distribution space as we can, and then also add in some reshoring of manufacturing jobs. And that's where we're seeing these big EV car manufacturers, these big uh, battery plants, even traditional manufacturing, that's now adding even more stimulus to the industrial market. So it's really a confluence of conditions where industrial has gone from almost kind of being like a bit of a cottage industry, even though it's very large, it was out of the, the minds of most people, even most institutional investors. But today, everybody seems to want a piece of industrial. Uh, so it, it's, it's crazy. In 15 years, it's gone from being very not known at all to now all of a sudden being very popular. Yeah, that's, that's why I wanted to have you on today. And, and it, I, I, did, I know that Daniel has a question, but I, I wanted to, you know, the other thing I think that's happening is this industrial is bifurcating into different segments. So, you know, so you have cold storage, you have dry storage, you have people are growing food. My sister, um, you know, they're growing, they actually bought an, uh, and built an industrial facility in Washington state, and they're actually growing cannabis for the state of Washington. Uh, you know, and so, so you're starting to see all these uses, you know, that are, you know, and sometimes it's just as you, as you mentioned, like Amazon, just having, you know, a bunch of stuff in there for people that want it. It's, uh, do you see the, do you see the industrial, um, uh, this asset class, you know, breaking up into different asset classes because it sure looks like it might. Yeah. I, I think it already has to some extent, like it, it's funny how, and you're, you're probably both very familiar with this is that like the media loves to say office space and commercial real estate somewhat interchangeably, like you hear commercial real estate apocalypse when they're probably just talking about office commercial real estate is much broader includes more things i think industrial real estate is even going to get to that level if it hasn't already where industrial real estate is is very broad so that does include the cold storage the distribution space can include self-storage flex buildings manufacturing so and they're all different even though they're all under that blanket umbrella of industrial real estate there is a lot of differences between a million square foot distribution center and a 50,000 square foot manufacturing shop. So I, I think that that will actually become more prevalent going forward. Uh, and, and the people that are active in that space, whether it's developers or owners or brokers, we tend to already differentiate it, but it, that is a great point to make is that industrial real estate, when said broadly, it doesn't get into the specifics of what actually separates these buildings from each other. And there are stark differences. So I, I think that's a very profound point to, to bring up. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. How did you um, first get into industrial? Like, how did you decide on that? Yeah, that's a great question, Daniel. And, and funny enough, it was purely by accident. So I had wanted to get into commercial real estate. Uh, and at the time, I when I thought of commercial real estate, I thought of skyscrapers or these big sexy office towers or shopping malls that are very glamorous with like the the well-known names in there. That's what I thought of. And it just so happened that the company that I interviewed uh, was heavily focused on industrial and take me, taking me back 18 years now, I, I knew very little about what industrial was either. Uh, one of the funniest stories that I heard just as a quick side note on that is that Uh, A guy was talking to me about industrial and he said, the only thing I know about industrial real estate is when I make a wrong turn off the highway and I end up in an industrial park and I'm just trying to find my way back to the main road. That was me. Like that, I knew very little about it, but just the people that uh, were at my office, uh, that was the specialty. 
Uh, it was a suburban office that was in an industrial building, uh, still at that same company today, uh, a partner at the company, and I actually own the building now. So it's kind of funny how I knew nothing about industrial real estate, uh, but having gotten into it and worked into it and just seeing all the different facets to it and how how special the industry was because it, it works out of the spotlight and just seeing all the different companies and the wheels of commerce, uh, I, I guess is how you could, you could look at it. I just became so fascinated with it that that's why I've spent my entire career there. I've invested the majority of my net worth directly into industrial. I talk about industrial all the time, but it was purely by accident. If I wouldn't have uh, taken a job at that first place that I started, I'd probably be working in the office market and complaining about that right now. <laughs> well, let's let's jump into some of the basics. You, you know, we, you, you know, I know there's distribution, manufacturing, flex space, and I think it can all get confusing. I mean, you know very specifically what those things are, but can you talk about you know the industrial basics? If somebody's interested in getting into this space, um, what are some of the things that they should know? Yeah, and those are the three main categories that I'd say is that manufacturing, warehousing, and flex. So manufacturing, think of it as any building where things are made. The example that I like to give, and it's actually not far from where you guys are right now uh, in Idaho, is the uh, Boeing factory just outside of Seattle, a small town called Everett. So it's a 4 million square foot building, like an enormous building. Like to even, I, I've driven by it, and to even think how large 4 million square feet is is almost incomprehensible. Uh, but that's the only thing that they do in that building is all the raw materials come in, it's made, assembled, produced, screwed together. Ultimately, an airplane comes out the other end. So any building where things are made, that's manufacturing. The one that's more common right now uh, is a warehouse, anything where things are stored. So trucks come in, might, it might be a 53-footer bringing in a, pa- a truck full of, of pallets. All the goods come off, they get repackaged, assembled, sent out in delivery vans. So it a delivery package might come to my house from a delivery van. That product in the warehouse might stay in there anywhere from half an hour to years. But think of a warehouse as anything where things are stored. And then the other category is flex industrial, kind of a catch-all. So that's meant to describe any building zoned industrial used for other purposes other than manufacturing or warehousing. So I've seen all kinds of uses. The one building that that I own that's, uh, that our office is in, there's a office user in there, our, our company. Well, so this building zoned industrial. It's just a, kind of on a major road in an industrial park. There's an office user. We have a flower store in there now. We have a hot tub uh, uh, showroom. We have a cabinet store, and we have a store selling equestrian supplies for horse enthusiasts. So like nothing in there is actually industrial, but it's an industrial building. Uh, and those ones are, are becoming increasingly more popular because they can handle so many different types of uses art galleries, churches, self-storage, bottle depots, you name it. It's it's probably a good fit in, uh, in a flex industrial property. Yeah, there's a couple of things. One, um, well, first of all, I grew up in Everett. I've been through oh, that. Really? Yeah, I, I grew up at, I, I've been through that factory a number of times and it's super impressive. Um, I, it might not be the case, but at least it's touted locally. Uh, I think it might be the one of the biggest buildings in the world. Um, <laughs> it as far is by as- volume. So it, yeah. they have uh, 90 foot ceilings in there uh, to, to handle the, that airplane. So when you factor in the cubic volume, it is the biggest building in the world. I'm envious yeah. that you've been through it. They've had that factory closed for tours 
uh, since uh, before 2020. So I haven't been able to go through it myself. Oh. I'm jealous. Well, yeah, I actually, I, I went to high school and Everett, so I have a ton of friends that work there still. Um, and, and so, uh, but, but so what I also wanted to talk about on the flex space part, because I think the manufacturing space is, is pretty, pretty simple to figure out and distribution is pretty, the flex space oftentimes has a front office to it as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that that adds a whole nother component. Like, like my father, he was an HVAC contractor. So the front office, you know, he had his uh, office a manager in there and maybe a secretary or two and some accountants. And then the back is where they made, you know, all the stuff that they needed for the, for the individual jobs. And then, of course, all the supplies would be delivered as well, but it never disrupted in the front office. And I, I, I feel like that is going to, you know, those, those, those are, um, you know, those are just on fire right now. I mean, we, we you can't find any of those because. Because typically it's actually less than an office building from a rent standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, quite quite often. So just using some rough numbers, office is a bit different right now because there's a lot of vacancies. So landlords are being very aggressive to do deals. But let's just assume it was a normal office market. To lease office space right now, by the time you pay your rent and your operating costs and your utilities, you're quickly in that 35 to $40 a square foot range. And in some big markets, it might even be double that, uh, but call it $40 a square foot for all your costs and for office space. Whereas you can go and rent a, a warehouse space and you're into it for $15, maybe 20 by the time you factor in uh, all your other costs. But all things being equal, you're probably half the price to be in an industrial building. And if you can utilize that back bay, like your, your dad would have with his HVAC business and he could park some trucks in there or some equipment or something that he was working on, you can't do that in an office building. So it has become very attractive for users that, that want to take advantage of that and also get cheaper rents. And I, I completely agree with that point you made though, that small Bay industrial inventory is very difficult to find. It's very difficult to find to lease and it's even more challenging to find ones to buy, but that inventory has been relatively fixed for a long period of time because most of the new inventory that's been added has been that big box industrial like the million square foot building to handle Amazon and FedEx and, and the big three PLs, that smaller inventory hasn't caught up, uh, but there's still a considerable amount of demand. So personally, that's an area that I'm hugely interested myself to invest in. Yeah. We, I looked at a deal up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, uh, that was exactly that where contractors had actually bought the building, they conduited it. And uh, they put their front office in there with all their signs and everything. And then they had all the stuff that they prefabbed uh, in the back. Um, and they had trucks coming and going at all times. And I said, man, that, that is going to be the model because, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's a lot less. It's, a, it's a, you know, ha- over a half less than you would by just, you know, being in some fancy office and, um, you, you know, and also, as you know, not a lot of customers want to see you in a fancy office as well, right? So you're kind of under the radar there. Um, so, so let's talk about if we could. I I know you own about 150,000 square feet, and um, and I and and I, I do want to talk about you know what's going on with this space, uh, where the interest rates are heading, what the banks think about you know, financing, because if somebody's interested, those are obvious questions. 
Yeah. And again, I'd like to contrast that to office where office is very difficult to finance right now for numerous reasons. Industrial still seems to be that, that poster child of good opportunities right now. So it's banks are still cautious. Banks are still going to want to underwrite the property. They're still going to want to know, you know, you typically have to do a lot more due diligence on an industrial than call it a, a multifamily property. So you've got to do an environmental site assessment. You have to do a building condition assessment or property condition report, sometimes called different things in different markets. Have to do an appraisal. You have to have legal review of all the leases. So there's a lot more due diligence that goes into it. So banks want to see all that due diligence on the property level. Then they're also going to underwrite the investor themselves. But I've still found a healthy appetite right now for banks to lend on good properties with good borrowers. The Fed's just increased another 25 basis points, uh, which is causing some consternation in the market where it's, and, and I'm guessing you would echo this comment. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it too. Uh, but it's it's making it harder for deals to pencil. If for no other reason, than just the cost of debt has gone up. So for borrowers to make their uh, debt service coverage ratios uh, for their loan to value, now all of a sudden it's just becoming harder for borrowers to make sense of it. So I I personally believe that there's a lot of downward pressure on pricing right now that hasn't been reflected in the market, mostly on the industrial side because the borrowers are in, are still in pretty good condition. Uh, mm-hmm. The vacancy rates are roughly 4% nationwide right now, so it's still a very low vacancy rate, uh, which means that most of, most owners have tenants in their spot paying their rent. So there's not a case for delinquencies or rent deferrals. That It's still a healthy market, but any owner that has to sell right now, I think the, just the, the reality of it is that they're selling into a depressed market and prices have gone down. I think of same property right now uh, is worth less, no matter what it is, than it was a year ago, just as a re- reflection of interest rates. And I don't know how high this goes. I, I would love to hear uh, both of your thoughts on where interest rates go. If, if I think that they don't meet again in August, but I think there's one in September, October, and December. So three more Fed meetings. Uh, uh, what do you guys think? Do you, do you see more interest rate increases? Where, what are your thoughts on that? Good question. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, you know <laughs> what I mean? Just, you know, I, they're gonna, I think they're gonna do what they can to stop the inflationary numbers. And I, I think what we're seeing is people are buying anyways, assuming they're either doing, you know, adjustable rates for less interest, assuming to refinance, or they're accepting those higher rates and then assuming to refinance. And I, and I would just add, I think, you know, it, de- it depends on, on um, the investor. So, so, so if it's a single family, uh, you know, let's say home war, um, which, uh, you know, they're probably going to stay put because they have those low rates in the existing home. Um, if it's, a you know, somebody that's looking like myself, a multifamily or, 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 or maybe just investment for our Airbnb, or I know a lot of people have done those, then I think things they're tapping the brakes right now because of, to your point, the cash flows way down. So the properties, ironically, you know, the rents haven't really been downward uh, you know, haven't, haven't really gone down. Um, and, but expenses have gone up uh, a bit, obviously, but interest rates have jumped so much that cash flows down. So, so we're start, we, we're definitely seeing at least 20 to 30% on, 
off of multifamily and uh, for, for just because of the interest rate though. Whereas office building, as you know, uh, it's mostly work from home pressure. Yeah. And now, you know, the, and you're also adding on that interest rate pressure. Um, and of course, expenses are up. So insurance is up, utilities are up, property taxes are up. So, so it's going to be an interesting point. I believe that the Fed is going to continue to raise in August as well um, for, for the for the main main reason of that the if you look at the inflation around shelter so you know the cpi they don't call it you know multifamily or single family they call it shelter uh but they and rent and all that stuff is all in one big category that is still actually driving some of the cpi numbers so you know rents are not crashing and and in the us at least i don't know if it's a summer spike or what but home prices actually went up, you know, which is crazy after what 10, 11 increases. So I think that, uh, you know, that's not exactly what they were hoping for. Right. And so when you, so, so that's why I believe Chad, that they're going to continue to do this because the biggest number for any person as I'm talking, I'm not talking about a business now, I'm talking about an individual is their, their, the cost of their home. You know, and, and so, so I, I, I do believe that they're going to continue. Um, and I do, I do think that we're going to see a pretty rough fourth quarter personally, uh, with loan maturities and some of those things that we're already starting to see, you know, there's a tremendous amount of debt, short term two and three year debt in 2021 that was, uh, as you know, it's in, it's in the billions and, and I think 1.5 trillion is coming due by the end of next year. So a year and a half and, and that stuff has all been repriced, you know? Yeah. That, that's a scary thought. And I completely agree with both of your points there. And, and I'd add on that I'm surprised that there hasn't been more economic pressure. I, I would have expected that with the interest rates rising at the fastest pace in decades, uh, the rate today puts it at the highest it's been in 22 years. I'm surprised we're not seeing more panic or or blood in the streets, whereas house, house prices actually going up. You're right. I, that is the exact opposite of what they're trying to do. So it's this could be something that we're, we're not just homeowners, but businesses are kicking the can down the road and trying to buy time and just hoping that, interest rates will go down. And if they have to take on some debt until that happens, maybe that's the mentality right now. Uh, but if this stays elevated, not even elevated, I think historically our interest rates are still quite a bit lower than they have been. If they stay at this level for any period of time, and maybe it's into 2024 or mid-2024, I can see there being some some real panic happening. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm just surprised at how resilient uh, and healthy the market is given everything that the feds are trying to do. Yeah, it, it's really been surprising. And that, that's why I was going to ask you, you know, with, with, with industrial, oftentimes you might have one tenant, right? Um, and so, and so how does a bank size that up and what are the loan to values and how does that all work? Like if you buy an industrial building and you have, you know, ABC manufacturing come in, what are, what's the process? Because there's risk there. If that company doesn't do well and can't pay you, then of course they can't, you can't pay the mortgage. 
and and that that's both a plus and a con on industrial real estate. And I can actually speak to one building that I own that almost fits that uh, that perfectly. Just to share my experience with it, so I have a fifteen thousand square foot building on roughly four acres, and it is a single tenant user in there. And my partners and I bought that with roughly four years left on the lease. And we bought that two years ago. So we're probably coming up on two more years to go. In this case, it's actually a, a fairly large publicly traded company. That's the tenant. So we could go on and see their financial statements because uh, they're all publicly disclosed. And in that case, we could see just how large the company was, how much they had in retained earnings. Uh, we, it was very easy to pacify both ourselves and the lender. But that is a huge challenge if you're buying a building where there's one tenant that's operating out of it. That tenant's under no obligation to share their financial statements with you. So you are taking a considerable risk by buying a property where, yes, you only have one tenant to manage. And I think that that is one of the benefits of, of industrials. That's roughly a $3 million building. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, but we have one tenant in there. So consider that, compare that to a multifamily property where you might have 15 tenants for a comparable size building price-wise. That takes a considerable more amount of management to oversee 15 residential tenants than one tenant that's a Fortune 1000 tenant that does everything on their own. I haven't even been to that property in well over a year. So it's a lot easier to manage. But the downside and where there's huge, a disproportionate amount of risk that can come with industrial is exactly what you said. If that one tenant were to leave, and that can just be, they go bankrupt, perhaps they get new management, like Elon Musk deciding that he's not going to pay rent on his office space in San Francisco anymore. They get new management and the owner says, we're not paying our rent anymore. You can, you can sue us. Or they just don't renew their lease in two years. Now, all of a sudden, we've got a property that's that's 100% vacant. And then we're also paying all the overhead on it. So we're paying property taxes and insurance and uh, utilities. So that is a huge risk with it. I th and and that's, that's where I think that to really ex succeed in industrial real estate, you just, you have to know the market so well. You have to be a bona fide expert in it. Uh, because you need to have the ability to backfill that space uh, if and when that time comes that the tenant leaves. So that could be a surprise, tenant goes bankrupt, or it can just be the tenant doesn't exercise uh, an option to renew. They give you six months notice that they're going to leave, and then you've got a runway to try and find another tenant. You'd better be confident uh, that you can find another tenant. Uh, otherwise, making payments. Uh, so actually, this leads into that question you asked. It's quite common to be in that 65 to 70% loan to value ratio, uh, all things being being relatively stable. 
So that one call, we have a million dollars into it of our own money. We have a $2 million mortgage on that. That's a pretty big debt service. Uh, if that property were to vacant on top of property taxes, on top of everything with that. Whereas in multifamily, you're never going to have 15 tenants all move out at once. You're going to have some constant churn. So it's definitely a pro and it's definitely a downside risk too. Now, what are other pros and cons of industrial real estate if somebody is considering getting into this space? Well, the one that is, in my mind, the best one is that you're typically dealing with corporations on long-term leases. That's that's probably the main reason that I'm so enticed by it uh, is instead of renting to home, uh, in the public and just uh, people in general, you're leasing to corporations. So when you're originating that lease, you do have the ability to see their financial statements, review how much money that they have, what their income is. They, you, you can go through a lot more scrutiny going through a corporation. And you also know that they've been around for a certain period of time uh, and you have longer term leases. And the, the best way to structure this is, and this is what I'd say if anybody is interested in industrial, is that most industrial leases are on a, on a triple net basis. And I'll, I'll explain it quickly, but if you wanted to, uh, to dive into it anymore, I'm happy to as well. But it'll typically be that tenants will pay base rent, net rent. That's the amount that's going to go to the landlord. That's pre-agreed upon, and that's what's stated in the lease. And that can be a flat amount, or it could be an amount that escalates with inflation, all kinds of different ways to establish it. But that amount is known. Then they also pay all the operating level expenses of the building. So if it's a freestanding building, it's very easy to explain. They just pay the property taxes. They pay the building insurance pay common area maintenance, and they also pay the management fees. But it's also, they pay any increase uh, and theoretically any decrease in those as well. So all any, if property taxes go up 10% this year and you have a tenant that's on a long-term lease, you're passing that increase directly through to the tenant. And that's different than multifamilies, especially. Uh, office and retail tend to, uh, to operate very similar to industrial. But if you have a, and in my mind, this is why I think industrial is so cool is that if you have a one property and you have a really strong tenant in there for 10 years and it's structured on that triple net lease basis, you know what your rent is going to be. And you also know that if there's increases in any operating level expense, it, it passes through to the tenant so that you're not eroding your own cash flow. Uh, so that, that'd be the main reasons on, on why I think industrial is so appealing. That's a huge, huge point, by the way. Uh, that's one. That's one thing that this asset class uh, has over many um, is um, is that exact issue. I wanted to ask. You know, I I just sold my last office building uh, three weeks ago. We closed, and it was in Scottsdale. Uh, and one of the things that was, uh, you know, being we were passing on was you know these big inflation numbers. You know, so I think uh, I can't remember exactly the number, but essentially there's a CPI or an inflation adjusted number inside of the lease. And so that, you know, those things get passed on to the, the, the occupants or the, the, in this particular case, it was an office building, um, you know, and they're not very happy about that. These, 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 these insurance prices, these, these property taxes, these utility numbers, and then the, just the basics around the CPI those are all built into these lease agreements and they essentially, so you've hedged, you know, anything that's going on with the economy or inflation or anything like that, because it's just passing it back 
that is, of course, if you're 100% occupied, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good point. And, and that, that is the key is you need to have tenants in there. Uh, otherwise, you're losing the benefit of the rent, but you're also losing the benefit of them paying the, the operating expenses of the building. So yeah, you definitely, there's a priority on having tenants in play. I wanted to ask a question, you know, going back to that uh, example you had where you have the one tenant in there and um, let's say for some reason that they moved, you know, because corporations do downsize and upsize and, you know, consolidate and, you know, there's all kinds of things that companies do, big companies. Um, and a lot of times, um, you, you know, you, you could be left with that building vacant and, um, and so I think what, can we talk about tenant improvements and, or what, you know, is commonly called TIs. So, cause one of the things that was killing us in our office buildings were, you know, like, like, a let's say a CPA would move out, but a dentist wanted to move in. Well, a dentist has a very different layout than a CPA, obviously. Right. So, you know, the, 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 you know, the, um, the dentist needed, uh, water and power and, you know, all the different rooms and, you know, so. So a lot of times people don't think of these, they're called tenant improvements. And oftentimes the landlord is spending that money to, you know, to, you know, and it's a negotiated thing when you're attracting somebody else to fill that vacancy. So can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah. And I think industrial is probably the best asset class for minimizing that amount of TIs that's required. Uh, that one building that we have, that's 15,000 feet. It's very straightforward. Roughly 13,000 of it is warehouse manufacturing space and 2,000 square feet of it is office. And the office is very simple. It's like a standard 10 by 10, maybe 10 by 12 office space, low reception at the front. Uh, the most that I would anticipate, and we've turned over quite a few tenants in our portfolio as well. The most that I usually anticipate is doing some carpet and some paint. Like that's, that's the extent of TIs in a lot of these spaces. Uh, and in this one, the, the back warehouse space is just wide open space. So it's fairly uniform and it would be conducive for most future tenants. Uh, on an exit strategy, if that tenant were to leave, I think we'd also look to see if there's a market to sell that. Uh, because quite often owners that want to own their own real estate, they'll pay a little bit of a pre premium over what an investor would. So there might be an opportunity for us to sell it and perhaps make a lift there or we, we'd reposition it for another tenant to go in expecting to do very little. There, there are properties though, and this is another huge potential downside risk for industrial where properties were specifically built for one tenant and it does require a huge commitment to retrofit it. And, and real quick story on it, one building, roughly a 70,000 square foot building in our market was purpose built for a fiberglass manufacturer. And this was 20, 30 years ago when we weren't off shorting everything to China for that. So they had a very, very viable business, uh, but the building was really customized for them. So it had a whole, whole bunch of underground pits where during the process of making the fiberglass, there's a whole bunch of discharge and, and just useless product. So they had to cut all these pits right into the, into the concrete, make a sub floor, like a basement for it. Uh, they had one area where it had 47 foot ceilings, uh, but it wasn't functional because there was a whole bunch of jet outs. Uh, and long story short, this was just a building that was very customized for them. And when the fiberglass business ended up shutting down, not only did they sit on that building vacant for a few years, it ended up costing them a million dollars to retrofit it, to make it 
compatible for the next group of users. And three traditional uh, industrial companies ended up moving in there, but it was a million dollars. And to me, that's a cautionary tale that if someone goes and buys a building that was heavily customized and not uniform for the next group of uses, how many people would just have a million dollars sitting around that they can say, oh, okay, well, we'll, we'll put that back into it and everything will be fine. Like not only would that completely destroy the metrics of the deal, uh, but it, that, that could cause financial ruin for somebody. So most industrial, like I'd say 90 to 95% of industrial is very light on the TIs. In some cases, you might not even have to spend anything. It can just be next tenant moves in, they want to paint, they can do it themselves to up to like a small amount. So paint, carpet, maybe some cosmetic things. That's the vast majority. But that five to 10% of properties can require considerably more. So that's in, it, that's in my mind, like just one of the biggest downside risks of industrial is that people need to fully understand what they're getting and make sure that, it, this is one thing I, I should say all the time, is that industrial especially, you need to understand what that building is worth vacant. So whether the tenant defaults, whether they go bankrupt, whether they don't renew their lease, you need to know what that building is worth if it was empty, even if there's a 10-year lease on there. And I think that that's one of the best ways you can mitigate that downside risk. That's a really good point. Yeah, now I want to bring up, um, Chad, a few questions that you had for Ken. I always love this part, asking our guests and the questions they have before Ken. So, um, Ken, how much pain do you think is in store if so many borrowers, borrowers start having mortgages renew? So, yeah, there's a lot. So we, we kind of touched on this earlier, um, you know, I wouldn't say that interest rates directly affect cap rates, but they what they do is they affect the the buyer's ability to pay more money. So therefore, they indirectly affect cap rates. So because there's less cash flow, cap rates have gone up because the borrowers are trying to, or I'm sorry, the buyers are trying to solve to cash on cash, right? Just, mm -hmm. Everyone's looking for a return. And because debt costs are higher, that returns less. So. So I think, Chad, as we start to see these loans renew or mature, you know, they're already um, outside of their loan covenants because of their debt service coverages are not what they originally signed up to be. Because uh, if they're in a bridge or they're in a construction loan or something like that, um, they're already out of balance, you know? And so... For people who might not know what a debt service coverage is, um, it, it it there's if it's out one or less, it basically means you're not making enough money to cover the debt. And so most debt coverages are 1.2 to 1.3, let's say, which is essentially a 20 or 30 percent buffer. Well, because the cost of debt has gone up, then therefore the cash flow's gone down. And um, and they're outside of their debt service coverages. So I believe that there's there's going to be quite a reckoning in the next six months um, for different reasons. I think multifamily um, people that that got these short term bridge loans, where the you know they're not going to be able to the refinance for sure because they're going to get a lot less um, debt and it's not going to cover the debt that they have. So, you know, they're going to be facing cash calls. And so we're, we're already seeing a little bit about that, not just in multifamily, but in a lot of these asset classes. 
as these loans start to mature. So um, I think a lot of it's going to have to do with the, the property itself, um, whether it's worth saving. You know, do you throw good money after bad? You know, it's it's going to be a case-by-case basis, but I do think it's really going to show up in the next six months. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'm surprised it hasn't already, but yeah, yeah. I think within the next six months. I, I, yeah, I you know why? I think, Chad, I think the reason what, what's happened so far is most people had cash. You know, they had reserves and they had, you know, when all this really started, you know, let's let's call it first of the year, perhaps, you know, when um, maybe last year even, but, but you know, they're, 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 they see their rates are going up slowly, right? And it starts to get worse, and then it hits that cap. Well, it, it it's it's still a lot more money. And so, the, what I've been hearing is that that some of these groups have run out of money, and so now they're in that kind of pre-default thought where they're either going back to their LPs or they're capitalizing themselves or whatever it might be. And so, you know, as you you know, right now they're hanging on to the rope, you know, and the balloon's going up, right? And that's actually, you know, they're trying not to lose the properties. And I guess, you know, hope, which is not a strategy at all, that, um, you know, the rates would go down uh, at some point. Uh, But I don't see, you know, I I see this for uh, at least a couple of years. Yeah, I I'm with you on that. I like the analogy of holding onto a balloon as it's going up. (laughs) That's a powerful image. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then um, the next, question that Chad has for you, which I think is a good question. He said, as a successful real estate investor, what's keeping you from considering industrial? Well, so that's a good question. I think, Chad, you know, what happened, you know, you know, like uh, with yourself is I kind of stumbled into multifamily. I became pretty good at it from the operation side. So like you were on the brokerage side, I was at the property management side. And so I understand it. When I get a package from a broker, I can look at the numbers and in 10, 15 minutes, I can toss it in a can or, or, or make an offer. And there's just like this momentum and this experience and this wisdom from having been in the business so long. So every single time that I've jumped out of my lane, uh, and I mean every single time, whether so I've done it, I've done self-storage, we've done single family, we've done estate lots. You know, we've done some uh, flex, we've done um, uh, office buildings. Uh, my learning curve is, much, you know, it's much steeper. So uh, to your point, it's, you know, even in your space, manufacturing, flex, distribution, it is very different. And that's under just the industrial uh, piece. So the same thing is with multifamily. So, so I just decided I'm going to just, you know, stick to what I know, try to be as good as I can at it. It's not that I don't love it. I actually, if I was to do another asset class, it would be industrial. It's a great point though. And it's worth emphasizing that staying in your lane and doing something that you're a bona fide expert in is very smart business. And that's why I'm not interested myself in those asset classes, not because they're not great. I would also consider multifamily uh, is a secondary asset class. I just don't know it that well. So instead of venturing out and having to learn how to become an expert and do that back of the envelope analysis in 15 minutes to determine if it's a good deal or not, I, I, it would take me so long to get to that level, whereas I'm already there in industrial. So yep. sometimes staying in your lane isn't a bad thing at all. 
Plus the other, the other piece is that you and I both have momentum. So we have Indeed. this hidden momentum where you're getting deal flow. You're getting phone calls and texts from people in your space. I'm not getting any of those, but I get them all on the multifamily side, you know? Right. So I get the pocket listings and I get those kinds of things when you're in the game, you, you know? And so, so if I was to jump to industrial, let's say in Phoenix, I don't even know who the commercial brokers are. You know what I mean? That's how far removed I am. It, I know every single one in the multifamily space in Texas, you know, Arizona and some of the markets we're in, but in the industrial spaces, you know, it's very different, different names on signs, different people, different, yeah, even different language, right? What do you and Daniil have planned for your portfolio this year? If with everything we talked about with the challenges on interest rates and the economy. She just, What's... Bought, a, she just bought one last month. She's like, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I, go, I think you should wait. She said, what if then she came home and said, I just bought another one. I bought another one. Well, you know, for me, it was like, it doesn't cash flow very much, but it, you know, I got a good deal on it. And so to me, I'm just kind of holding tight for rates to go down. But at the same time, it's not costing me anything. It's just, I'm not really making very much either. So uh, that's where I'm at, but I'm probably going to chill now for a little bit and let it all. You did a good deal. So, so there, you know, Scottsdale, which is where we live, um, is not necessarily affordable. So, you know, uh, you, if you could find a home, not a condo in the 500 range, you know, that was a score. And so she, she made it, um, one of her missions was to buy as many of those as she can't, uh, could at, you know, two car garage and, you know, all that stuff. So she bought a bunch of those. And what she did was she found one and she slams an Airbnb um, uh, uh, operator in there for eight. Uh, the guy signed an 18 month lease for her. So she's going to have no vacancy for 18 months. And yeah. so it was covered. So it was, a, it was a way to get out of cash mm -hmm. into an asset and, and have it covered right away from a, from a, from a year and a half. Uh, and that's for me. Um, you know, we, we have six, we have six construction projects. Uh, we put four on the shelf right now, um, because of construction costs and interest costs. Um, and, um, and, you know, we have built for years. And so for us just to hold land for, you know, however long, it's not a big deal. So, you know, we don't necessarily have to build and, 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 uh, and then we're continuing to look every single week we look for, um, value adds and you know all through tech well basically are the markets we're focused on at the moment are arizona and texas and texas is huge as you know it's it's got a lot of big cities and so um we have acquisition guys out there looking at deals and and but we there's a big difference between bid and ask in other words the i think the sellers are still looking in that rearview mirror and we're looking through the windshield you know so it's very different um and until you know we're all sitting in the car together I don't think, you know, there's going to be too many deals, uh, but we're trying. I mean, every week we, we make a one or two offers. It, it just becomes kind of like a numbers game, right? Where you, you still have to keep putting things out there in order to see where deals are landing. But I would say the same thing. It's very hard to get deals to, to work right now. So I, I, I know deal volume is down globally right now, just in terms of getting things across the goal line compared to 2022. Uh, but I don't see that getting easier for the rest of this year and perhaps even 2024. It's going to be hard getting deals together. Yep. 
I agree. I, you know, it's everybody was talking about rate cuts, what, three or four months ago, right? And all we've seen so far is a pause and an increase. Oh, so if they raise again, which they said they're going to publicly, they may not, but if they do, um, they're probably, you know, they're still going to be increases. And so things are going to continue to go up before they pause and then go down. And if they do go down, um, we don't even know that they're going to go down at a slower rate than they were raised. They're not going to, they're not going to cut 75 basis points or 50 basis points. They're going to do quarters. So, so we're talking about a good year here. I mean, if you look at last month, what we were five and a half, I think on the federal funds rate. So, you know, we'd be lucky to be at that in 12 months. I just don't. And even if it goes to four and a half, it's still not that big of a difference, you know, from, from, uh, you know, the, the, cause of the spreads and everything, you, you know, that we have on the commercial side. So, so I, I, I don't really see things changing that much. The, 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 the basic fundamentals, uh, it's still going to be the same. We're not going to see commercial real estate is going to continue to drive down. Um, the, the, the big, you know, crystal ball is going to be what's going to happen with single family. Um, and that is a bit of a mystery to me personally, because I don't understand. Well, I do know why people aren't selling because they're locked into these low rates. So that makes a lot of sense. But, um, you know, so therefore they're not going to list. But, but, um, but they're, they're, I don't know how, I mean, I know, but I also know that, you know, we have an inventory issue. In other words, we don't have enough, but it's odd that we would have 11 rate increases and we're not seeing a fairly significant correction, um, on the single family side. It's, it, it, it's quite, it's quite odd. I haven't wrapped my head around it completely. Any, any thoughts from you? I, I'm shocked, shocked that the, it's people are that resilient because, Anybody that's has to renew a mortgage, and maybe just a lot of people are locked into thirty-year mortgages right now, so it's not even an issue for them. But anybody that has a that was floating a mortgage or uh, has something coming up, they're they're facing three hundred fifty, four hundred basis point increase in their mortgage from the lows. That could result in an extra seven hundred fifty thousand, fifteen hundred dollars a month. Like, where does the average family that's living paycheck to paycheck has no money saved? Where, where are they coming up with another thousand dollars a month like that and the fact that that hasn't rippled through the economy at some level right now that just blows my mind i'm very surprised as well yeah i agree with you yeah it's gonna be interesting that's why i i just tell everybody you know just get heavy in cash you know and 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 just build your cash reserves for the next six months and and let's let's see how far the knife falls you know it, it hasn't hit the floor that's for sure yet and, um, you, you know, the best times that I've ever bought real estate and you went through this too, was when the banks owned it, yeah. you know, cause that, that's who I would, that's actually who I want to deal with. I, I want to deal with the person that, that took back that mortgage and, um, you, you know, and, and that is super clean, right? You're just negotiating a write down on the loan and, and whether or not you want the, want, want the property or not. Right. And you know that the banks want it off their balance sheet as quickly yep. as possible. There's Correct. no emotion attached to it. It is just yep. purely a number. Yep. That's right. Yeah. And the investors are unfortunately already gone and all that stuff's gone. You don't have any legacy issues around any of that. Um, but I, and I do think you'll probably see a bit, a little bit of that, you know, you're, you're going to see, you're going to see some fire on some of these syndicators 
you know, that, um, um, you know, underwrote the way that, that underwrote to raise capital, I guess is probably the nicest way to say it. Nobody could have anticipated the rate increases, but the whole thing's going to be um, under scrutiny, I believe, you know, so, so depending on who they are, how well capitalized they are, uh, it, it'll be, um, it'll be, you know, we're already starting to see articles pop up as you, as you, as probably rad, you know, there. Um, and so there's a lot of people that are concerned. Yeah. Well, and, and rightfully so. There's a lot of speculators and a lot of people gambling. They, what, they weren't even making prudent real estate decisions. They were just gambling with it. So yeah, it'll be interesting to follow. I do have a non-real estate question for you. What's, yeah. what's the writing on your uh, tattoo oh. on your arm? Oh, uh, this is, uh, uh, Latin. Yeah, it's Latin. It's called, it's faithful to the end. And it's uh, in our family crest. Me and my two boys have the same tattoo in the same spot. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. Great. So Chad, listen, before we wrap up, uh, you know, I know we want to direct people to your YouTube channel. I went on there. We both did. We took a look at some of your uh, videos. They're excellent. Uh, where can people find you and what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, YouTube would be best. Uh, the so YouTube, your YouTube seasoned professionals, the both of you, so you you know as well as everyone, they, they added handles now. So it used to be Griffiths CRE, but if you just go at industrialize, uh, that takes you to my YouTube page. If you search for anything to do with industrial, you'll probably come across a video of mine. Uh, and also active on Twitter. So Twitter and YouTube would probably be the two best ones right now. Well, great, Chad. Well, well, uh, I can't wait to get you back on. Let's see where the Fed takes us. And um, let's connect here the next six months to a year and see how these rates have uh, affected us, how these cap rates and interest rates have affected us. Yeah, we'll, we'll either be in a much better position or, or we'll all just have gray hair and look very ragged, uh, depending <laughs> on what the next year has. But uh, I'd love to continue the conversation. 100% uh, Chad. And again, thanks for your time. Thanks for being on the channel. And thanks for having such great information. Congrats on your success. Much appreciated, Ken Daniel. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Strategies Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review on iTunes and let us know what you thought of today's episode. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Any information or advice available on this podcast is intended for educational and general guidance only. Ken McElroy and KenMcElroy.com LLC shall not be liable for any direct, incidental, consequential, indirect, or punitive damages arising out of the access to or use of any of the content available on this podcast. Consult a financial advisor or other wealth management professional before you make an investment of any kind. Although Ken McElroy and his affiliates take all reasonable care to ensure the contents of this podcast are accurate and up-to-date, all information contained on it is provided as is. Ken McElroy makes no warranties or representations of any kind concerning the accuracy or suitability of the information contained on this podcast. Any links to other websites are provided only as a convenience and Macquarie.com LLC encourages you to read the privacy statements of any third-party websites.